Welcome to Midweek Wednesday Night Soaring Through Scripture. Thank you. That's our young adult worship band. First time for them playing at church. Wow. Thank you, guys. All right. They were super nervous. That's great. It's good to have them join us and play and lead us in worship. So tonight, we're continuing on. Bible from 30,000 feet, and tonight we are in the Gospels of Luke and John. We did Matthew and Mark last week, and so tonight here, Luke and John. And I'm excited to get into these two books here tonight. I love these two Gospels. One thing I like about these Gospel books here with Luke and John is their intended audience. Because as we discussed last week, remember how, you know, we got four Gospels, and the Gospels are all being written with kind of a specific purpose, and they're being written to a specific audience. So a lot of things are very similar, but there's some variations based on these things here, why they're writing and who they're writing it to. So we saw that Matthew wrote primarily to the Jews to proclaim Jesus as the King of the Jews, and then Mark wrote primarily to the Romans to proclaim Jesus as that suffering servant. Luke now is going to be writing primarily to the Greeks. And because the Greeks were kind of fascinated with Plato's ideal man, Luke writes now to proclaim Jesus as the son of man. And then John comes along and he writes really to bring all of this together and to write to all men proclaiming that Jesus is the son of God. That he is not just man, but he is fully man and fully God, the perfect God man. So these two gospels here really have a wonderful application for us. They're, they're written really to bring us into that greater understanding that Jesus has come to meet our greatest need, and he's the only one that is able to do so, right? Luke and John have a more universal target, which shows that the good news of Jesus is meant for the whole world and not just for the Jew. We're not excluded as Gentiles. We've been brought in, and Luke and John really want to make that clear and known to you, that this Jesus that came to the world has come to you, not just for Israel, but has come for the whole of the world. And Luke is the only gospel that will record, and Luke will talk about this here, records a lot of things very unique to Luke's gospel, but, but he records only that Jesus sent out the 70 disciples, not just the 12, but there's that passage where Jesus sent out the 70 disciples. Now, for many rabbis, 70 was that number of the languages of the world. So sending 70 disciples kind of was a picture of the gospel being preached now to the whole world. So Luke is sure to include that and, and really has a, a very applicable kind of meaning behind it. So we see these Gospels here, Luke and John, taking on a much more broader audience here now in their target of who they're writing to. Now, Luke, of course, is widely regarded as the author of the Gospel of Luke. That's good because it'd be weird if it was written by Mark and it's called the Gospel of Luke. So Luke is the guy that's, that's recorded as the one that goes down in history as the author of this. Though, again, we don't have a lot of proof of that in the writings themselves. These authors um, in the Gospels are not, are not revealing themselves, saying, I am the one that wrote this here. So we have to rely upon what early church fathers have said. And little, it really is, is known of Luke. 
He's not an original disciple of Jesus. Very interesting. He, he wasn't really even an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. He's only mentioned three times in the New Testament and only by Paul in his writings. In fact, here's where we see the name of Luke or the person of Luke being mentioned in the, God, in the New Testament. In Colossians 4.14, Luke, the beloved physician and Demas greet you. In Philemon 23 and 24, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. And then in 2 Timothy 4.11, only Luke is with me. Get Mark, bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. So Luke's mentioned just a few times in the New Testament, not a lot known about him, but what we know about him, we know through his journey with Paul and Luke is also the author of another New Testament book. Somebody shout it out for me. Acts. Thank you. All right. The book of Acts is written by Luke as well. And notice, go to Luke chapter 1 with me here. Just quickly, we'll kind of look at the intro here. I should have had that already myself. I don't. Let me get there. So, let's see here. Just look at the end of verse 3. Um, or let's read verse 3. It seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus. Now he's also mentioned in the Gospel of Acts as being the one that that, or the Gospel of Acts, the book of Acts as the one that is kind of, that's being written to. So here's Luke. He's writing to Theophilus mentioned in both of the intros of Luke and the book of Acts. So Luke was a man that's a companion of Paul on some of his missionary journeys. In fact, um, a lot of times the narrative of the book of Acts, we'll see the narrative kind of changing from they to we. When, when Luke is writing about some of the things that, that Paul and some of his companions did, but then also when Luke is with them now, he includes we went and did this. So you'll see the narrative even change in the gospel, or in, the, in the book of Acts, I keep saying gospel. It's a popular word right now, but... So, Luke now, we're going to see, is the longest book in the New Testament. Interesting, right? The longest book in the New Testament, not by chapter, but by word count. Add to that the book of, of Acts, and Luke and Acts now, word count-wise, make up 28% of the New Testament. That means that Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other author. Now, oftentimes we go, well, Paul wrote mo most of the New Testament, right? He's the one that wrote the bulk of the New Testament. And he did, he wrote, he wrote many books of the New Testament. But based on word count and the length of those writings, Luke wrote more than Paul did. In fact, um, we see that, that Luke wrote 37,932 words, while Paul wrote 32,000 words. 408. Very, very interesting. Now, if Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews, as many suggested, then that's going to change that style a little bit, but that's not including Hebrews. So, um, but still doesn't go more than 37,932 words, which Luke wrote. So very interesting. And as we've seen here, Luke had a very interesting occupation. What, what job did Luke have besides just traveling with Paul? What was he? It's a physician. Yeah, he's a doctor. That's a good guy to have around, especially when you're Paul, right? Who's constantly getting himself into some trouble. He's getting stoned, left for dead. Luke's the kind of guy you want to have with you in your group, in your posse, while you're moving about from city to city with people that are trying to take you out, take you down. Luke is a doctor, and so he's coming alongside 
ministering to Paul and these things. And so while Luke is writing the gospel, he writes from that kind of perspective that's very, again, unique to the other authors of the Bible. So he's, he's writing things on a much more technical leather, uh, technical, um, what am I trying to say? Technical level, thank you. Technical level, and he's also writing with um, just a lot more description, you know, of various diseases or afflictions that he would have certainly a much deeper knowledge of, right? Now, Luke was also, what we find, a real historian. He's faithful to gather just a lot of kind of different accounts from different eyewitnesses and and put them together to share with others. It's believed that Luke was a Greek. Now, that's interesting because that means Luke is the only Gentile author of the New Testament. He's the only one that's a Gentile that's a part of the authorship of the New Testament. So Luke is a Greek. And so it's interesting, Paul never mentioned him in the list of Jewish companions that Paul had when he wrote in Colossians chapter 4, but he mentioned him separately afterwards. So Luke wrote with a very refined Greek and of New Testament writings. It's unsurpassed just in literary richness and beauty. This is kind of the background that, that Luke had. So as he's writing this letter, it's just rich in the ways uh, of his writing and the descriptions he's given. Now Luke would oftentimes in his writings give extra explanation or interpretation to, to these Aramaic terms or, or Jewish customs. He, he avoided Aramaic expressions such as rabbi. He replaced it with teacher, a more familiar term to the Gentiles, you see. Again, it, it just kind of shows the universal aim of the gospel message. Luke wrote with a Gentile in mind and, and oftentimes put you know, a Gentile in that favorable light here. And we certainly thank the Lord that you know, Jesus was sent to this world to save all people right? Not just a specific group, not a select crew. He came to save all that was lost. In fact, it tells us here the key verse of, of this gospel essentially is Luke 19 10 that says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's the very heart of Jesus. That's the very thrust of the gospel that Luke is writing here, the key verse of this gospel right here. Jesus came and died for sinners irrespective of of their, their background or, or nationality. So with Luke's educated background, his, his profession, and, and the due diligence that he's given in collecting all this data from different eyewitnesses, it's the most comprehensive gospel that we have. So Luke's a great book to study through. Again, as we soar through scripture, we're just going to kind of touch on some of uh, a few things here in the gospel. But look again. At the intro here, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, and you, or that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Now, some have thought that Theophilus perhaps was uh, a high official in, in um, the Roman court and that uh, Luke was his personal physician or, or doctor, perhaps. We're, we're not sure that's the case, but it could be that, that um, you know, Luke is there writing this as, as Theophilus has come to know the Lord and, and has come into the faith. And so Luke is looking to kind of 
give an account of the things of Jesus here to really kind of cement and grow his faith in these things. So Luke here, I like this. He says, just as those who from the beginning were, were eyewitnesses um, and ministers of the word deliver them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding. It's almost like, you know, Luke is saying, listen, you've heard from the rest. Now it's time to hear from the best here. I'm going to give you kind of a, a much fuller, deeper account now. And it's true because Luke takes us all the way from the Annunciation to the, the announcement of the birth of Christ, all the way to the um, ascension of Jesus to heaven. And so Luke takes us all the way right through the very beginning now to when the announcement came of the birth of Jesus to when Jesus ascends back to the Father. And then Luke just picks it up again in the, in the in the book of Acts, right, where, again, he's, he's ascending up to heaven after giving the disciples that encouragement to seek the Holy Spirit there in Jerusalem. Now, if we're to break it all down, we see that Luke chapter 1 to 2 covers 30 years of Jesus' life. Luke chapter 3 all the way to chapter 19 verse 28 covers three years of Jesus' life. And then Luke nineteen twenty-nine to the end of chapter 24 is just one week of Jesus' life. Um, so only 8% deals with Jesus' life before ministry, 25% deals with his last week before he died. So like I said, Luke gives us that fullest account now, just a real complete narrative of the work of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the life that he lived. 20 miracles are recorded in the gospel of Luke. Seven of those miracles are unique only to Luke's gospel. And then he gives us 23 parables in the gospel of Luke. 18, again, are unique to Luke himself, including parables like, you know, the, the prodigal son, the good Samaritan. Only Luke is one that records those well-known stories that oftentimes are our go-to stories as we're kind of sharing things from the Word of God. Luke is the only one that records those. Nobody else does. So Luke also gives us some of the greatest stories, like the two disciples after the, the resurrection of Jesus. They're on their way to, to Emmaus, and Jesus comes, and he meets with them, he walks with them, he begins to reveal scripture to them, how all these scriptures have pointed to the work that Jesus would do. I mean, wouldn't it have been great just to sit there and listen to Jesus giving a Bible study all about himself, all about what the Word of God has been saying in Old Testament times, pointing to the Messiah that would come. I mean, just imagine that study. That would have been awesome to be there. So again, like we, we saw in some of those writings of Paul, where Paul was mentioning Luke. Paul says, only Luke is with me. This is believed to be when Paul was in prison there in Rome. So it seems like Luke was with Paul right towards the end of his life. Not, not only that time he was with him on several of his journeys, but then also there while Paul was imprisoned in Rome. That would mean that this book was most likely written uh, in the 60s, 60 AD, somewhere around there. Um, and Luke also follows along with that consistent flow that we see in the Gospels where we start off looking at the introduction of Jesus to move to his Galilean ministry. That's really what the big focus is of Jesus' life. It's all the miracles that he did there in Galilee and the people he ministered to. And then it moves from the Galilean ministry there to focus on Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem near towards the end of his life. So that's kind of the outline that we see in the Gospel of Luke, introduction of Jesus, then his ministry in Galilee, heading then to Jerusalem, and then the Passion Week there, that last week of his life. Now, like what was said already, Luke wrote with a real compassion. 
all right? He's a physician, right? Important for a doctor to have good bedside manner, right? Well, Luke kind of writes with that sort of gentleness and that compassion here. He's, he's recording the different miracles in many ways that Jesus has touched the lives of the, of the broken and the hurting. And he just, you know, like a good doctor, he records even how Elizabeth, when she comes and sees Mary while Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist and how the baby just leapt in her womb, right? John's recording these things. He's interested in these things. He's a doctor. He's like, this is, this is interesting. This is unique, and only Luke records that. It's found in, in chapter 1, verse 41. Look over there with me here. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. I like that. Isn't it interesting that, you know, Luke, a good doctor, doesn't record, you know, and this fetus or this blob or just this embryo. No, it's the babe, the baby. It's a, it's a living being there in the womb, right? Again, just a good word for the, the sanctity of life here. Now, in chapter 3, Luke takes us through the genealogy of Jesus. Again, only Matthew and Luke really do in great detail. And so... Luke begins with Jesus, and he goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew starts with Abraham, and he goes then to Jesus. But when these authors get to David, they follow a different line. Matthew went through Solomon, David's son, whereas Luke went through Nathan, David's other son. And that's important because it was prophesied that the Messiah would be a descendant of the royal line of David. But remember... When we studied through the kings and, and even in, in Jeremiah, there was something that happened because the kings began to get very corrupt, very bad, to the point where God said, that's it, I'm, I'm cutting you off from the throne. And there was a bloodline or a blood curse placed upon that line of David, starting with Jeconia. After Jeconia, there would not be another descendant of David ruling on the throne. And soon after Jeconia, then they were taken away into captivity in Babylon to where they still haven't had a, a king ruling on the throne of David. So when this was pronounced there, and, and it's in Jeremiah 22, verse 30, saying, thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, speaking of Jeconia, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. So when Israel began to hear this word being pronounced, they're like, oh my, well, what are we going to do? Because all the prophecies talk about this Messiah coming from the line of David and that the throne of David would continue on forever and ever. So when God pronounces this, well, what does that mean? Did, is the word invalid? Did God change his mind? How is this going to work now? How is the Messiah going to come? So a lot of people have been in great question over these things. Well, God had the problem all solved ahead of time. You see, the answer is provided in the virgin birth because Matthew, you see, he takes us through Joseph's line, Jesus' stepdad, which Joseph goes all the way back through Solomon and David, the, the royal line. So Jesus now, through adoption, he is now the right person legally to the throne. He has the legal right to the throne through Joseph. Matthew follows that. But then Mary comes along, and she traces it back now, not through Jeconia's line, leading to Solomon, then to David, but through Nathan's line, leading to David. So through Mary now, which Luke records, it's showing that Jesus had that biological right to the throne. 
So the legal right is covered through Joseph, but there's not the blood curse there, a part of Jesus, because it's a virgin birth, and he has the biological right to the throne. So that's why the virgin birth is super important. It's not just another great thing, a miracle, that's wonderful. Well, it didn't, you know, it didn't have to be, it didn't change. No, this is important because of what the Word of God says, because of what God has done, and God fulfilling His Word now through all of this, bypassing completely that curse line. So then, Luke 3, that genealogy of Jesus, and Luke 4, we see the, the temptation of Jesus where we see again Satan come against Jesus at the onslaught of his ministry, right? And, and how Satan is coming against him to try to attack him. What did Jesus do? Every time that Satan came, hey, you want to prove yourself? Why don't you do this? What did Jesus do? He quoted scripture, right? What a great lesson that is for us. And so all through Luke chapter 4, you see Jesus continually answering Satan, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. It is, it, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall serve. It's been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So everything that, that Jesus did in combating the enemy was simply using scripture. What, a, what an important lesson that is for us, isn't it? That we need to be those that are planting God's word in our heart. Because what a strength it gives us. What a help it is to us. We might think, well, you know, what's the big deal? Man, when the enemy comes, when, when he comes looking to try to bring you down and sin, how important it is to be able to recite back scripture. And stand upon the promises of God here. That's our strength for us in these times. Now, after the temptation of Jesus, Jesus comes to Galilee. He comes to, to Nazareth specifically. And he comes into the synagogue now on the Sabbath. And somebody hands him a scroll. So Jesus has been identified as this rabbi, a, a teacher. He comes to the synagogue. He's handed a scroll. And he turns to this place. And here we have really Jesus pulling off, I think, the first you know, mic drop in history, all right? Look at what he says in chapter 4, verse 17. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he'd opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Isn't that great? He was like, bam, mic drop. Says this is great. And then everybody's looking at him, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today the scriptures fulfilled in your hearing. Isn't that amazing? So Jesus quotes now from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2, and he reveals here what his ministry is all about. This is at the very beginning of his ministry. And he says, hey, this is why I'm here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, give sight to the blind. Jesus has come to heal and to restore those that are broken and hurting. But Jesus ended his reading before sharing a another part of Isaiah 61 verse 2. He kind of cut himself off halfway in verse 2 of Isaiah 61. Because in that second part of Isaiah 61 verse 2, it says, and the day of vengeance of our God. So basically, it would say to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus didn't say that. See, the comma between these two verses is separating a period of time that's lasting now for 2,000 years. 
the first part of Isaiah 61, verse 1 to the first part of verse 2, as Jesus read here, was fulfilled in his first coming. But that second part, and the day of vengeance of our God, is going to be fulfilled at his second coming. We live in a period of time where we are recipients now of his grace. But there's coming a time when Jesus is coming back to judge the world, to execute vengeance of God upon those that have rejected him and his son. Now that's going to come later. When we respond to this acceptable year of the Lord, well, then we're safe from the vengeance of the Lord. How we need to remind ourselves of the beauty of this, of what Jesus came to do and the life we have in him through faith in him that we've been rescued, that we've been delivered, that we've been set free, that we no longer have to worry about wrath or vengeance or judgment of God because Jesus already took that for us there on the cross. And we've been spared from that. Aren't you glad for that? We need to remind ourselves of that daily. Thank the Lord daily that he has spared you from wrath, from vengeance, from judgment. Oh, there's coming a day when that's going to happen, but we're not going to have to worry about that because our sins have already been dealt with through Jesus coming at his first coming and the work he did on the cross. So Jesus reads that out, and he just basically sits down and says, hey, guys, I'm the one that verse is talking about. I'm the one that's fulfilling this right now here in your presence. I'm sure there are a lot of jaws dropping on the ground at that moment. Well, now, during Jesus's Galilean ministry, he called his disciples to him. He began to teach them many things. Luke records an abbreviated, you know, sermon on the mount there in Luke chapter 6. And again, just kind of letting his disciples know the qualities and the characters that mark the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus also performed a lot of great miracles and teaching, uh, teaching through various parables. So Luke records a lot of parables and again, a lot of unique parables to Luke's gospel only. But then the next section is we've, we've moved from the introduction of Jesus to the Galilean ministry of Jesus. We move to the next section now, which is the, the heading to Jerusalem section. And we see the gospel of Luke really kind of turn a corner here in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Turn over there with me, Luke 9, verse 51. This is a very important kind of turning point now in Jesus' ministry and life, and that Luke picks up on very well. It says in Luke 9, 51, now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, that's pretty big. You kind of read through that, and you just sort of jump over it. No big deal. But the idea here is that Jesus now is setting his attention, his focus, his sights upon Jerusalem and to the very things that he had come to this world to do. Not, not pleasant things by any means. In fact, just over in chapter 9, verse 21, Jesus said, well, it says, and he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man, Luke 9, verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Jesus knew full well. When he set his face to go to Jerusalem, he knew full well what was awaiting him. And yet like a, oh, what's the the word I'm, I'm looking for? Um, I mean, just a a strong 
and courageous person, he says, I'm going to lay my life down. So from this point on, everything Jesus is doing is, is with that focus of the cross, moving himself towards the cross. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, where he knew exactly what was awaiting him. And he had called his disciples to that very life as well. It says in Luke 9, 23, then he said to them all, just after he, he told them that he was going to be taken to Jerusalem where he'd be killed, he says to his disciples in the next verse, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Now, Catch that because Jesus isn't calling his disciples to a lifestyle, to a life of laying themselves down without himself having done it himself. Before he told his disciples about this important role and attitude to have as followers of Christ to to lay yourself down, Jesus says, I'm going to be laying myself down and I am truly, literally going to be killed. I'm going to go all the way in this. He's not calling you to do anything that he himself hasn't already done but again he's laying out the very principle here of of living the blessed life lay your life down there's no there's no blessing or joy or happiness to be found if you're seeking to hold on to your life if you're seeking to live your life your best life now if you're looking to to have everything your way there's no blessing in that a lot of people go, oh man, I just got to find myself first. I'm just going to go out and just find myself. No, Jesus says, you got to lose yourself. Stop trying to find yourself. Lose yourself because that's the way of true joy and happiness. That's the way of Christ. That's living a Christ-like life. So Jesus, with that passion, with that courage, Not, not just the courage of a moment, not just a whimsical, oh man, I got to act and do something. This was a, a courage that was a, a resolution in his life. This was something that he was committed to do. Stephas, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So here's that turning point. Now, over this next section where Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, we're going to see a lot of things that Jesus is sharing, speaking, teaching. He's looking to continue to instill these great truths in his disciples. He's not just saying, okay, guys, turning point. Now it's my time to just kind of focus on what I got to do. You guys just try to stay out of my way. No, he's continuing to pour into his disciples. And it's over the section that we read of the Good Samaritan. Great passage. In this story, a man is looking for loopholes in the law of God to love others. So let's look at Luke chapter 10. And it says there in verse 20, and he said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, this is a lawyer now, trying to, you know, quiz Jesus, how do you have eternal life, all these things. Not wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
Who's my neighbor? So Jesus goes on to explain this parable. Again, a parable was to cast alongside uh, of this story, this truth. And so it's Jesus giving these um, earthy stories that have this kind of spiritual implication or meaning. Earthy stories with a, with a heavenly message to it. That's what a parable was. And so this Good Samaritan was Jesus laying out for this man here, right, where he's thinking, how do I inherit eternal life? Love my neighbor as myself. Okay, well, who's my neighbor? Jesus, don't worry about who your neighbor is. Be neighborly. Just start to bless others. Start to, to serve others. Start to minister to others. And that's what the story of the Good Samaritan does. Everybody else is walking right by him, but the, this man that was, was beat, mugged, and left for dead, and yet the Samaritan comes along, picks him up, cares for him. Jesus says, that's how you need to live. Don't worry about, okay, who do I need to be loving to? Who's, can you define this a bit for me? Because I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to be loving people I don't need to be loving. And Jesus says, you need to love all people. Be a neighbor to all people, not just to your neighbor. And then Jesus talks about another great story here, or sorry, yeah, Luke brings up another unique parable, the persistent friend in Luke 11. Right after instructing the disciples on prayer, Jesus gives a lesson now on being persistent in prayer. Don't give up. Keep seeking, especially when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit. And then he gives the parable of the rich fool that was spoken to those who love money. money. They're guilty of covetousness. It teaches the value of eternal benefits. Look at Luke chapter 12. This man here that was storing up all his crops. Luke 12 verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So another great parable of people that are just living in, in covetousness, seeking to just you know, reap and take in and take in and think, oh, this is going to be great. But yet, what's that going to get you in the end? Better to be rich in God's eyes, rich in heaven, storing up eternal rewards rather than earthly rewards. Then we move on to see the parable of the fig tree in Luke 13, verse 6 to 9. Jesus teaches about the patience of God, but also his desire for us to bear fruit, fruit, Again, it's that byproduct of a life that is just connected to Jesus, living in Jesus. Then again, one of the more beloved stories in the Bible, the, the parable of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. And again, we're familiar with that. I like what we read in Luke 15, verse 17. This man, you know the story well. The man goes out, takes his father's inheritance, and he just squanders it living in the pig pen. And it says in verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare and I perish with hunger? I, wouldn't that, I could just picture, I just sitting there trying to feed himself with the pig's food. And then it just says there that when he came to himself, it's just also like, what am I doing? Sometimes that's what it takes for people to kind of hit rock bottom for them to just sit there and go, what am I doing? How did, I end up, how did I get here? Because there's no reason for it. 
This is bad decision after bad decision. He came to himself and he realized, I've got it much better at home. And the great story, he says, I'll arise, verse 18, and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose, came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, bring out the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And they began to throw a feast because the son that was lost has come back. Again, just showing, revealing that graciousness of God, the heart of God that it's just desiring for you to take that step back to him and he's ready to receive you the moment that you do. So oftentimes we miss out on just seeing this love of God because we think we got we to gotta stay back. We're unworthy. We don't deserve it. And you're right. We don't deserve it. We never will. But that's where the grace of God kicks in. And he comes out running to greet you the moment that you come back in in repentance and confession as this man was doing. Now, this parable also illustrates for us not just the love of God, but it also illustrates the conflict between legalism and grace because we oftentimes just kind of end it right there, great, they throw a party, but then we begin to see that the older brother, he got grumpy, he got upset. He's like, Father, what's going on? I've been working here faithfully all this time, and yet you throw a party for this guy? What gives? This older son began to, to grumble and get upset. But then we see in verse 30, But as soon as this son of yours came, who's devoured your livelihood with your harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, the father says to the son, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make Mary be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. See, there's some people that get a little bit grumpy over grace when they see it exhibited in other people. Well, wait a second. I've been faithful. How come you're not celebrating me? And God says, we're already in relationship. You're already blessed through me. But this person was dead. Now they're alive again. That's what grace does. Grace reaches out and he reaches to those that are dead in sin and trespasses, makes them alive again. And it's reason to celebrate. But those that are, are, are trapped in legalism, and they get grumpy, they get upset over these things. You see, this son was thinking that He's earning his way. He's failing to see grace. And so it is for so many people, they think we got to earn our way. It, uh, our blessings of the Father are based upon our works and our performance. Who do you think went on to serve the Father more faithfully over the next number of months? I would think it was the son who experienced the goodness and the great grace of the Father when he least deserved it. How we need to be those celebrating grace and not getting caught up in legalism. Well, that's not the way it should be done. They shouldn't be doing that. Oh, no, no, no. And celebrate grace. 
Celebrate the goodness of God. Goes on to share during this time of ministry another unique parable, the unjust steward, Luke 16. That's one of the more puzzling of Jesus' parables. Simply teaches the need to be faithful in little things if more is to be earned. Then we see the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And that is a great account there in Luke 16, verse 19 to 31, which really is one of the more important texts regarding the condition of those who die without Christ. We saw there that there was, you know, this, um, in Hades, this kind of chasm separating um, Hades, a place of torment, from Abraham's bosom. Where again, it's believed that all those that died in faith in God before Jesus came and fulfilled the promises were placed in Abraham's bosom, a place of peace and blessing. Whereas in Hades, those people that died apart from faith in God were were in torment. And that rich man is, is crying out for somebody to go and tell his family to repent that they won't end up in the same place. So again, an interesting parable there that illustrates for us kind of what's going on after people die. And today, we know when we die, we're in the presence of the Lord. We're with Christ. But for those that die apart from Christ, is not going to be pleasant for them. That's why we need to be sure to get the, the gospel out to people. Then we see the parable of the persistent widow, Luke 18, teaching the need to not lose heart and praying, especially for the lost. And then the Pharisee and the tax collector, another parable, emphasizing the folly of self-righteousness. That's where these two people went to pray. One was boasting, thank you, Lord, for not making me like this person here and, and all these things. And yet the other one just coming in complete humility, relying upon the justification of Christ. So that's in Luke 18, verse 9 to 14. And, well, let's see, how are we doing for time? I want to um, move along here. And so, in this last section now, that Passion Week of Jesus, we again see the heart, that compassion of Jesus. Look at Luke 19. Luke 19, verse 41 to 44, says this. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. See, because Israel here, we're not ready for this visitation when they should have been. Notice Jesus comes in and he's weeping. Again, just that, that, that humanity, that, that compassion and tenderness of Jesus. He's saddened over the fact that so many people have rejected him when they should have known the fact that this is their day. In this, your day, Jesus says in verse 42, the things that make for your peace, he's speaking of himself. Now, how were they to know about this day? Well, it's all been recorded for them there in Daniel's prophecy, the 70-week prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 to 27. They should have been counting down to when the, the, the Messiah was going to be coming. Because when Jesus comes in his triumphal entry, he fulfills that day perfectly that Daniel prophesied. You can break it down, 183,880 days from the time that the decree goes forth to go and rebuild Jerusalem there in Daniel's day to when the Messiah would come. Jesus fulfilled that perfectly at his triumphal entry the first time he allowed himself to be 
publicly praised as the Messiah. But people weren't getting it, overlooking it, dismissing it, rejecting Jesus, and Jesus is broken over that. If only, if only you'd known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace. Now let's jump to the last chapter, and, and then we're going to just quickly go through John here because we've been covering John a lot already on our Sunday morning study, but last chapter, Luke, Luke 24, it's interesting here because we have two separate occasions where Jesus is wanting to open the understanding of his followers. First of all, he did it with the two on the road to Emmaus, right? Those two disciples after his resurrection. Look at chapter 24, verse 31. This is after Jesus has been talking with them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? And then he does it with the 11 disciples there in verses 45 to 46 in that same chapter. Look at verse 45. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. See, when Jesus Christ is revealed to you in his word, it's going gonna, it's gonna to set your heart on fire. That's what was happening. These people were hearing the word of God being taught to them, and their hearts were burning. And now Jesus, with his 11 disciples here, before he ascends to heaven, wants to again open their understanding to the scriptures here. That's going to make a difference and an impact in our lives. So many times people are saying, I, I want a new experience with Jesus. Oh, I'm just looking for something, a, a new experience with Jesus. Listen, you don't need anything new. What you need is for the familiar to be newly applied to your current situation. Because God's word is a living thing. It's able to cut through the, the complacency and even the familiarity if you'll let it. That's good news for you. That through the blood and resurrected life of Jesus Christ, he has made a way to refresh your spirit and set your heart aflame. That's what he desires to do. Man, get into the word of God. Open the word of God and, and allow the Lord to open your eyes, your mind, your understanding and open your heart that it might catch fire with what Jesus is revealing of himself in and through his word. Well, Moving into John's gospel now, we begin to talk about this word even more so in John's introduction. But before we get into that, let me talk a little bit about John's gospel because it's been a little bit since we introed it, but we're not going to take a lot of time to really go through a lot of it because we've been covering it very, you know, thoroughly here in our Sunday morning series in the gospel of John. But the gospel of John is very different than the other three. Now, First of all, we've got to figure out who's writing John's gospel. It's obviously John, but we have John the Baptist. We have John the, the Apostle, the disciple of Jesus. And so we're not talking about John the Baptist. We're talking about John the Apostle that wrote this gospel. John came to be known as the disciple of love. In fact, he refers to himself that way five times in the gospel of John there in those chapters. Like I said, the authors of the gospels don't identify themselves specifically, but John would allude to himself at least, but only allude to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
Now, that's very fascinating, very interesting, because that's not the way that it always was for John. In fact, he had an interesting nickname along with his brother James. They were called the Sons of Thunder. Why? Because they're just out there. They're explosive people, right? They just want to call fire down upon those that are rejecting Jesus. They're like the first WWE tag team champions here, right? These guys were, were kind of brutes here and, and everything. But I think it's so wonderful that John, later in his life, identifies himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved because that's who Jesus is. God is love. And John began to understand fully the love that God had for him, so much so that he could say, and I'm the one that Jesus loved. I don't think John meant that in the sense that I'm the only one that Jesus loves. Because these other loving guys are, are a bunch of real idiots or ninnies, you know, whatever it is. I don't think John thought that way. I think John just deeply, personally, intimately understood the love that Jesus had for him. So much so that he could refer to himself as the one that, that Jesus loved. But guess what? Because God is love, because Jesus is love, he has that for each and every one of us to the point where we can say, hey, I'm, I'm Kendall, the one that Jesus loved. I'm Keith, the one that Jesus loved. I'm Wendy. I'm the one that Jesus loves. That's what we should be saying personally of ourselves. Understanding just, again, that great love and grace of God. So John identifies himself this way. John, we also know, is one that wrote other books of the Bible, the, the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he also wrote the book of Revelation. Now, this gospel was the latest of the gospels written, probably written between 85 to 95 AD, making it, again, the last gospel written. Now, maybe you've asked, why do we need four gospels? Well, I think we covered that pretty well as we've gone through these last couple of weeks here looking at these Gospels. But again, each one is written with a bit of a different perspective. It's retelling the same story, but sometimes for a different audience. And each Gospel looks to portray Jesus from a different angle. Just as if you were to take four witnesses of an accident that happened. And those witnesses might have various details given that were unique to their perspective to where they were standing, to where they saw it. They're all recounting the same accident, and no doubt things are all lining up, but they might have different details based on what they saw from their own position and angle. And so we have these four Gospels that, again, just fill in the picture all the more for us from these writers that are writing from their own unique kind of perspective and position. And ultimately just completes the picture and the fullness of who Jesus is to us. I'm glad that we have four Gospels. And again, just fills it all in for us. Now, God, John, John's Gospel, very unique again. It's been called the fourth Gospel. Not just because it's number four in order in the New Testament. But because it adds something very different from the other Gospels. We just finished talking about Luke's Gospel. How he had a lot of unique content in his. But Luke follows much of the same kind of outline and flow as the other gospels does but just adds a bit more detail but John's gospel is written very differently very uniquely Matthew Mark and Luke are called the synoptic gospels taken from that those two Greek words sin and opticos meaning to see together so they all look at the accounts of Jesus and they provide a synopsis a common summary there in Matthew Mark and Luke but the gospel of John differs quite a bit the synoptic gospel all contain very similar accounts that we see a lot of overlap but John's gospel 
contains about 90% unique information and accounts. So he writes with a, a very different purpose and intent here in this. Here's some of the contrasts that we see between the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the gospel of John. The synoptics are chiefly concerned with Jesus' ministry in the north around Galilee, whereas the gospel of John gives more coverage to Jesus' ministry in the south and around Judea. The synoptics much more are, are emphasizing the kingdom, whereas John emphasizes the person of Jesus. Jesus is seen as son of David, son of man in the synoptics. He's seen as the son of God in John. Um, and you know what? You can see the rest. I'll leave that up for you here, but I'm going to keep moving on here just for time's sake here. But you see a lot of those different comparisons and, and that which makes these gospels kind of different and unique from each other, at least with the synoptics and then John's gospel. So John's purpose in writing this gospel is to show that Jesus ultimately is divine. He's writing with that intent to show that Jesus is the Son of God and that life comes to those who believe that he is indeed the Son of God, that he's the Christ. So John gives us his purpose in summary all the way at the end of the book. And really, it's there that we find the, the key verse of this gospel. It's in John 20. Verse 30 to 31, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, that purpose of John is going to drive what's being put in this gospel account. Because John is not merely interested in recording, you know, historical facts. He's more interested in stating how Jesus, the Son of God, is able to change the course of history here. And more so, how he's able to impact you personally and individually here. So the first three Gospels focus more on what Jesus did and taught. John, however, focuses more on who Jesus is. So he writes with a unique purpose, and it's, and it's affected what he includes and what he kind of leaves out of his gospel. For instance, he omits Jesus' genealogy. He's going through the, the family tree. Doesn't talk about his birth, his baptism, and temptation. There's no parables recorded in the gospel of John. He doesn't write of the transfiguration, the institution of the Lord's Supper, or his ascension to heaven after his resurrection. What John was focused on was Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. His private conversations with individuals and his preparation primarily of his disciples there, to name a few things. And we've been covering that preparation of his disciples in great depth here in that upper room discourse that we've been seeing here lately on Sundays. And again, the motivation and purpose of what John included in his book was to move us on to believe that Jesus was the Christ and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. That word believe appears at least 98 times in his gospel. That's really what John was desiring to see happen in people's lives, that they believe in Jesus. And that word believe always occurs in the verb form, never the noun form. Along with the word believe, John employs a number of synonyms to make his meaning clear. Some of these are, are receive or drink, come, eat, and enter. It's all about coming and, and receiving of Jesus, putting your trust in him, accepting him, and not just accepting him as a great historical figure, but but recognizing and accepting him, putting your faith in him that he is the son of God and the only one that is able to save you. That's what John is referring to in meaning when he talks about believing in his name. 
So John gives us all this material really to help us shape our trust in Jesus as being fully God and, and fully capable of being our Savior. So he records seven signs or miracles, right? Through the Gospel of John here and seven I am statements. The seven signs or miracles in John's Gospel are all being written again just to give proof that Jesus is not just some, you know, prophet or good rabbi. He's, he's a son of God. He's proving it by raising people from the dead, turning water to wine, you know, making, making a little bit of food go uh, an existential long way, walking on water. All these things John is recording to show that Jesus is the Son of God. And then the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Again, this is what this Gospel is really centering a lot on. I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door of the sheep. I was going to quiz you guys on that because this is, again... You've been going through it in John. Now I just put up there. So we got I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I'm the door for the sheep. What's another one? The way, the truth, and life. Thank you. I am the, the vine, the true vine. Okay, the truth. No, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No. Um, oh, I'm the light of the world. We said that already. What'd you say? Yeah, the resurrection of life. I think you guys got them all. Oh, I think you maybe got one more to go. I am the good shepherd. There you go. All right. Okay. So these are the seven. I'll put them back up there for you now. Okay. There you go. Seven I am's. So again, these statements are given to show that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. He's divine. He alone holds the power to save and to give life to all who believe, who put their trust in him. So that outline now that we see in John's gospel is seeing his personal ministry. Chapters 1 to 4 is public ministry. Chapters 5 to 12, private ministry. Chapter 13 to 17 where he's really pouring in his disciples personally. And then his passion ministry there, that time leading up to the cross there. So chapter 1 starts off strong. John gives an interesting introduction to Jesus. He takes us to the beginning. Remember, Matthew takes us to Abraham. Right? In the beginning, in the genealogy, because he's writing to the Jews. Abraham, their great hero of the faith. Mark doesn't include a genealogy because he's writing to the Romans, who aren't concerned with the lineage of a servant. Luke takes us to Adam because he's writing to the Gentiles, right? So again, going just beyond just the Israelite um, thinking. But John wants to show that Jesus is the Son of God. So he goes back to the beginning to reveal that Jesus is God. Look at John 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So the Word, now, being mentioned, ties into Jesus. And the Word in Greek is the word logos, which had great significance to both Jews and Greeks who were reading this gospel. Now, to the Jews, the Logos was a self-assertion of God's personality. Oftentimes, they used the term Word of God in place of just the term God. For example, ancient Hebrew editions of the Old Testament changed Exodus 19.17. that says, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, to say that he brought people out of the camp to meet the Word of God. 
So in the mind of the ancient Jews, the phrase the word of God could be used to refer to God himself. But then to the Greeks, the Logos was the power that kept all things intact in the universe, keeping it orderly instead of chaotic. It was the reason of God which controlled all things. So John uses this word here, and he identifies this word as Jesus. And even more so in John 1.14 when he says that this word became flesh and dwelt among us. Speaking of Jesus. Now, it's interesting because John was having to combat some false teaching in his time. False teaching that's creeping in known as Gnosticism. They believed they knew better than everybody else. They were prideful. The Greek word uh, ginosko means to know. And so they thought they've got superior knowledge. They were greater. They, they knew better than everybody else. And their teaching was that Jesus never had a physical body. It was the first heresy in the early church. It wasn't a denial of the deity of Christ, but rather a denial of the humanity of Christ. They thought there's no way that Jesus could have come in, in a bodily form. They thought that the body was evil. It, and, and Jesus no way would take on something sinful or corrupt in this way. So they had all these weird sayings about Jesus, these Gnostics. They would say that Jesus, whenever he walked on the sand, he didn't leave any footprints. He was just kind of like a, a spirit in a sense, right? Not a physical form. They had all these fanciful stories that he didn't have a body. So John is writing to fight against that error. Even in, in, in 1 John 4.3, when John says, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not a God. Here you, you see why he's having to say that because of this false teaching coming in, denying the humanity of Jesus. And that's an important thing, to, uh, a remarkable thing to think that God would come in human form. So when John says the word became flesh, dwelt among us. That was a huge statement to make, revealing the very work that Jesus came to do. Well, John's gospel, John records a lot of great, again, signs, miracles, a lot of great accounts. Now, John's gospel also really kind of centers around these different Passovers. It kind of gives a good timeline also of what Jesus was doing. And again, a lot of the Gospels focus a great deal on the Galilean ministry of Jesus, whereas John focuses on a lot of the things that Jesus was doing there in Jerusalem when he would go down to the feast, and primarily the, the, the feast of Passover. And so we see the first Passover mentioned, chapter 2 to chapter 4, that's the first year of his ministry. Second Passover covers the second year of his ministry, chapters 5 to the beginning of chapter 6. Third Passover was the third year, chapter 6, verse 3 to chapter 11, and then this fourth Passover, last Passover. So these are the times that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and, and in so doing, he's kind of engaging a lot of the religious leaders. The religious leaders were the ones that were really, you know, in opposition to Jesus and the things that he was saying. He's kind of ruffling the feathers. He's kind of poking and prodding some of the things he'd be doing by coming into Jerusalem, healing somebody on the Sabbath. You know, these religious leaders say, you can't do this on the Sabbath. And begin to talk to them. And then, no doubt in revealing some of these I am statements, again, it would just cause them to become irate. Because when Jesus used these I am statements, right? Jesus was very purposeful in that. Because the Jews knew very much so when he says I am. He's using the very name that God used of himself. They're in Exodus Chapter 3, verse 14, when speaking to Moses, Moses asking God, who shall I say has sent me? God says, 
I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God says, this is my name. I am the all-existing one. The one that meets every need for you. That'll be all that you need me to be. So Jesus comes and he speaks these I am statements. So what we're going to do tonight here, in closing, we're going to kind of wrap it up right there. But I'm going to get you guys. I know time is, is short, but I thought this would be just kind of a fun exercise. I'm going to put that slide back up of the I am statements here. And let's get you guys into groups of seven, all right? So move around, get about a group of, uh, of six of you. Let's get seven groups. Can you do that right now? Move around, and I'm going to give you guys an I am statement that I want you guys to look up. And I want you guys to give me just kind of, you know, the significance of Jesus speaking these and how it applies to our lives here, okay?